0: Hey, well, good morning. Uh, as Aaron mentioned, uh, my name is Andy. and I'm uh, going to see how tall this thing goes. Um, yeah, I'm one of the small group leaders here at River City, and I'm, uh, I'm not normally uh, the one up here preaching. So, uh, in fact, this will all, all kind of be kind of new for me, too. So, uh, buckle up. Um, if you're new or you're visiting, like, you might be a week early, but welcome. Um, we're, we're glad you're here. So, uh, this year, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew and For the past month or so, we've been in this section of of Matthew where Jesus is teaching about his upside-down kingdom, and he's been showing us that the ways of his kingdom are greatly at odds with the ways of the world. He's been confronting our default nature and graciously offering a better way. So, so far in this section of Matthew, we've seen Jesus confront and reverse our beliefs and understandings when it comes to marriage and divorce and singleness. And, and last week, Brandon showed us uh, how Jesus' kingdom reverses our assumptions about money and about the very nature of salvation itself. And so this section of Jesus' teaching in Matthew, it's kind of bookended by teachings on this idea of greatness. And so this all kind of started when the disciples asked Jesus, like about a month ago here, uh, about who the greatest in the kingdom was. And so this morning, as we get into chapter 20, kind of thematically, we're, we're going to be going back to where we started. So you see, Jesus has just told his disciples that they're going to have positions in his new kingdom and that they're going to sit on 12 thrones and that many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And and now Jesus and his disciples have started their journey to Jerusalem, where he's told them he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and crucified. And we're going to pick up here this morning with Jesus responding to a mother's request for her sons. And he's going to use this as an opportunity to confront and reverse the disciples' understanding of the natures of influence and authority. See, like, the ramifications of what Jesus is going to say here this morning are hugely important and relevant to us because the way we see authority and influence, like, that's foundational to the way that we live our lives and relate to the people around us. It's like the dynamics of power and influence, they shape our lives and our relationships, both professionally and personally. Because, like, you don't have to be somebody's boss or have, like, a million followers on Twitter or like literally be standing up here on Sunday to have power and authority and influence. See, like we are all influencers. We all crave significance, and that affects every relationship in our life. And ultimately affects our relationship with God too, right? And so this morning as we unpack this passage here together, I want you to see that the world tells us to seek authority and influence for our own advantage. But in Jesus' kingdom, we're called to seek authority and influence for the good of others. And I want you to see how Jesus' decision to lay down his authority and his influence empowers us to actually follow his example and sacrificially serve others. So with that in mind, uh, we'll pray and we'll get into our passage. So God, uh, yeah, thank you for just enabling us to gather here together in this place. And yeah, thanks that you're building your upside-down kingdom here in Dubuque. And yeah, I just ask that you prepare our hearts to really receive and treasure your word here this morning. And yeah, Holy Spirit, would you just be the one leading this the morning, um, I just ask that you'd calm my nerves and enable me just to, to speak what is true and just give like clarity and boldness to anything that I say that is good and just help us to all quickly forget the stuff that's not. And above all, I just ask that like, you'd be glorified, that you'd be made much of, and that just you'd be doing something great here this morning. Amen. Yeah, so this morning uh, we're going to be studying Matthew twenty verses twenty through twenty eight, and uh, you can feel free to uh, follow along in your Bibles or on your phones. Otherwise, it'll be up on the, the screen behind me. So, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. "What is it that you want?" he asked. And she said, "Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other on your left in your kingdom." You don't know what you're asking," Jesus said to them. "Can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink?" We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. For these places, have been, or these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So yeah, as we dig into this passage, uh, we're going to be looking at the nature of influence and authority, and we're going to see how the world views it, how Jesus reversed it, and then like what that means for us. So now, as I mentioned earlier, they're all heading up to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to be welcomed as a king, and then he's going to be crucified less than a week later. And the mother of two of these disciples comes to Jesus asking for a favor. And we know from earlier in Matthew's account, as well as from some of the other Gospels, that this, uh, this woman, like the mother of Zebedee's sons, that uh, this is the mother of James and John. And that would also make her the sister of Mary, and therefore Jesus' aunt. And so James and John are Jesus' cousins. Um, And so she's coming to her nephew here, Jesus, and basically saying, like, this new kingdom of yours, like, let's talk specifics. See, James and John here, they'd like to sit on your right and left. And so they're asking for, like, the two most prestigious and honorable positions in the kingdom after Jesus himself. And credit to them for believing that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is indeed ushering in a new kingdom. But Jesus answers here in verse 22. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink? Let's ignore the fact that James and John are like grown men here having their mom do their bidding. Like Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. Like they're on a road to Jerusalem where Jesus has told them he's gonna be handed over and killed, and they still don't get it. It's like this cup that Jesus is talking about here. It's not it's not like filled with like a special ceremonial wine. He's not talking about communion. He's not like talking about that weird black stuff that like the Black Panther drinks before he fights Michael B. Jordan. Like, Jesus is talking about the cup that He's going to be pleading with God to take away from him in a week or two in the garden. This cup of God's wrath. And Jesus is saying to them, if you knew the way my kingdom is going to be ushered in, like you wouldn't be asking me this. And so when Jesus asks if they can drink the cup that he's going to drink, and in their ignorance and pride, James and John say, we can. It's like, oh no. Like That's a really bad answer. (laughs) Like... Can we just acknowledge here for a second, like, how patient Jesus is in this moment? Like, my friend Greg and I, when we were in college, like, we both had this tendency to kind of put our foot in our mouths and, um, like, just make really dumb jokes at the wrong times. And, like, like, come to think of it, that's something I'm still growing in. Um, And one of us, like, we would say something terrible, and the other one would, like, graciously inform them by, like, literally palming the side of their face, like, with, like, this figurative starfish of rebuke, Um, you know, like a basketball, um... It's like I really respect Jesus' forbearance here because like James and John, like, they really deserve like a God-tier face palm of rebuke. But he says to them in verse 23 here, he says, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left, that's not for me to grant. See, James and John, they're going to understand what it means to suffer for the sake of the kingdom. Because in Acts 12, like James is going to be arrested and he's going to become the first of the 12 to be executed for his relationship with Jesus. And John's going to go on to be persecuted and arrested, tortured, and exiled. So Jesus is saying to James and John, like, you're going to serve in my kingdom, but as far as sitting at my right or my left, like, that's not how any of this works. And the other 10 disciples here, they're angry and annoyed. So we started out this mini series in, in Matthew 18 with the disciples arguing about who was the greatest. And they see what James and John are doing here, like, and they are indignant because they've been doing this just as long as James and John, like, They've met the same weird people. Like, they've handed out the same bread and fish to the crowds. They've been confused by the same parables. And they're not going to be passed over for, like, a good position in the kingdom just because James and John are asking Jesus to play nepotism here. And, side note, I don't really think they're even better than James and John in this situation. Like, I just think they're mad because they didn't ask first. Or, like, they're probably feeling good about themselves because they weren't dumb enough to have their mom ask, like, their divine boss for a promotion. And so in verse 25, like Jesus calls them together, and we see him explain how the world treats influence and authority. He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. See, Jesus is telling them that their view of influence and power and authority is no different from that of the rest of the world. Like The rulers of the world, they use their authority to oppress and dominate to cement their positions of power and to build up their resumes and support their agendas. And Jesus is saying here, like, you're no different. Like, your motives share the same roots of pride and selfish ambition. Like, you might not have the title of king or governor, but your heart is the same. And this was like 2,000 years ago, but it really hasn't changed that much now, has it? Like, our world tells us almost from birth that we should start thinking about what we're going to be when we grow up and how we're going to cement our place in the world. And and as we transition from school into the workplace, we're taught that we need to study hard and work hard and build up our portfolios and our resumes. And if we devote ourselves to those things, like we'll be successful one day and we'll have power and authority and influence. And to be clear, like none of those are bad or things that we shouldn't desire or even work hard for. But you see, like the problem is that the world tells us that authority and influence are primarily about us. See, I used to have a a boss named Dick, and uh, after college, I got a job doing web design up at this small marketing agency up in Minneapolis, and um, it was my first real job, and I got to work with some really creative and talented people, and uh, almost all of us were very young, and Dick was the owner there, and he'd been working in marketing for a long time, and then he got his MBA, and he started the company, and uh, after about 20 years, he'd grown it into 25 employees, and we all answered to him, and the nice thing about being the owner is that you are 100% in charge, right? And I think that was really important to Dick, because like at any time we'd have about five or six projects going on, and Dick was involved in every single one. Like he wanted to be included on every phone call, cc'd on every email, included in every single meeting, and that in and of itself was tolerable, I guess. Um, but he had this tendency to like overstep the people he'd hired, and he put his foot down on decisions that nobody else agreed with. Like, he was the king of over promising and under delivering. And as much as I'm grateful to Dick for giving me that job and credit him for, like, keeping the doors open for 20 years, because that's cool, uh, it was obvious to all of us that, like, marketing is this ever evolving kind of world, and Dick hadn't really kept up with it. Like, he was kind of painfully stuck in the past, and, like, we built websites, and yet, like, his, his internet browser was so old that, like, we didn't even support it. And, like, none of these things are egregious, but, like, in combination, it led to a lot of bitterness and resentment among his staff and like the reason so many of us were young was because that no one could really like like work for dick for more than like a few years and uh he was generally like a very calm and mild-mannered man and but when anyone suggests that he maybe take a step back like he would get so angry he couldn't see it like the way he handles authority like it hurt his employees and it drove clients away and in the end it hurt his bottom line you see, like, Dick's problem wasn't that he was old or that he didn't like his employees or that he didn't think they were talented or smart. Like, it was that Dick had spent his whole life getting to a point where he was the one in charge, where he had got to be the decision maker, where he had the power. And his problem was that he saw authority and influence as tools for his own gain rather than opportunities to support and serve his employees and clients. You see, like, the world tells us that Power and authority and influence are about us. And as much as we were frustrated with Dick, like, and right now many of you are thinking about the, the Richards in your own life, um, Jesus is saying here that when it comes to our hearts that we're no different. Like, we crave power and influence because we want to feel significant. We want to feel validated. Like We want to be the ones making the decisions, and we want people to think that we're great, Like we want to just feel like we have everything under control or maybe we just want to make our lives easier. See, but Jesus' kingdom turns this thinking upside down. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. You see, Jesus is offering another way. He's saying like, my kingdom isn't like yours. It's something else entirely. He's telling them, reject the way of the world, like reject this lie that influence and authority will truly satisfy you. He's calling us to deny our pride and reject those thoughts of self-importance. And he's saying that his kingdom, in, in his kingdom, great is a title reserved for servants and slaves. And that if we want to be great, we need to lay down our selfish desires and instead become sacrificial servants and seek to care for the good of others, even if it costs us something. Because that's what he did, right? Like, verse 28, Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to sacrificially serve to the extent that cost him everything. So to, like, crudely summarize this passage, like, Jesus is telling his disciples, like, you're all being a bunch of self-important jerks, so do the opposite, like me, and we'll call it a day. And so, like, you see what the problem is here, right? Like, it's not that simple. Like, these ideas aren't objectionable, they aren't new, like, this is literally the fourth time in the last three chapters that Jesus has explained this whole last-will-be-first idea to the disciples. And if you're like me, you might be feeling a little convicted. But, like, the idea that Christians should be sacrificial servants, like, it's hardly mind-blowing, right? Like, and it's, in fact, it's hardly even Christian. Like, my CEO this week actually sent out an email uh, to the whole company with, like, a link to a TED Talk called, Are You a Giver or a Taker? And it was from this psychologist who um, had performed this study that showed that in the workplace there are givers and there are takers. And givers are like these selfless people who try to get their work done, but are, are way more concerned about making sure that everyone around them is supported. And takers are people who, uh, like their selfish counterpart, who care about their own numbers and their own bottom line. And you found that in the workplace, takers tend to outperform givers. And that shouldn't really surprise any of us, right? Uh, but when it came to companies' overall performance, like givers were way more valuable. See, and Like, that's not that much different than what Jesus is saying here, right? Like, the virtue of rejecting self-importance for the good of the team, like, that's not a hugely disagreeable idea. Like, we've all been screaming that about Russell Westbrook for years. And so when Jesus says that we should set aside our pride and consider others' needs before our own, like, be people marked by grace and compassion and sacrificial serving, and we all agree that these are good and true and that Jesus is the perfect example of this, like then we have to ask ourselves, like, why don't we do it, right? Like, why don't we live that way? Because if we're honest, we don't. Especially when it comes to people we don't like or people who aren't nice to us. Like, when it comes to people who are jerks or we think are selfish, like, our first thoughts are not, how can I serve them? Or like, God, how are you calling me to sacrifice for them? Like, it's easy to love people who are lovable, Right? But even then, I think most often the people who we fail to sacrificially serve are the people we have the most influence with, like our coworkers and our spouses and our kids. Because, again, you don't need to have a title or be a boss to be an influencer. And at my job, like, like many of you, I'm, I'm not a supervisor or a manager, like, but at home I have the title of dad, and that gives me like, an uncomfortable amount of authority and influence. Like, and just in reflecting and preparing, like the last few weeks, I'm just realizing that there are so many times where I use my authority selfishly. Like, when Ruby's having a hard time and she's not listening, like, I try to be patient. And I feel like I have, like, a good, like, five minutes of patience in me. Like, that really good five minutes. Like, when that's up, I get angry and I raise my voice. And I think discipline is healthy and important, but in those moments, like, my thoughts and my anger aren't rooted in love. They're coming from a place, where it feels like my authority is being challenged, and like, where I'm believing that I deserve better than what I'm getting right now. Yeah, and in my relationship with Steph, like, I think that belief just results in a lot of things, but one of them is nitpicking. And, like, I'll point out these little things that she didn't do right, and ask them if she can do them just a little bit differently, and, like, sometimes when you do the dishes, like, you leave the brush in the sink, or, like, sometimes when you pull the car, like, into the garage, you pull too far, and it makes it hard to get the lawnmower out, and, like sometimes I like poke fun at her when she forgets to put like drinks out with dinner and like these all sound like stupid like little things because that's what nitpicking is but like together they reveal something about my heart to Steph. Like instead of being thankful that she did the dishes or she brought home groceries or that she made me dinner, like my actions and my attitudes reveal that my first concern is that things are being done my way. That life is primarily about my needs and that my role in our family is more important than hers. And when we see our positions of authority and influence as primarily being about us, like the result is always selfishness. See, when work is about us, we become overbearing bosses, or we become uncompromising and opinionated coworkers who complain and talk badly about other people, and like everything is about my projects and my position and where I'm going in the company, and everybody else is just an ally or an obstacle. So when our family is about us, we become parents and spouses who are impossible to please or we're just absent altogether because like, as much as we love our kids, like they're not helping us get that next promotion, right? See, when authority and influence are all about us, we become obsessive people pleasers or emotional bulldozers. And it leaves people around us feeling hurt and frustrated and exasperated by our impossible standards or just completely ignored. See, in the end, we're not even happy. Like, that position of influence or power authority, like, it never satisfies, does it? Like, it's still not enough. Like, we are still not enough. And we get angry when it feels like our authority is being challenged or our status or our reputation are at stake. Like, we crave significance. And in the moments when it feels like we don't have it, we're just hit with these, like, waves of anxiety and shame and depression. We are constantly left wanting And you see, like, the problem with just agreeing with Jesus and then trying to live up to this example that he set, like, is that we are hopelessly incapable of change. Like, even on our best days, we still fall short. We try to, like, white-knuckle our way to selflessness, but it's impossible. Like, Paul said in Romans 7, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Or C. S. Lewis described it this way, he said, All this is flashy rhetoric about loving you. I've never had a selfless thought since I was born. I am mercenary and self-seeking through and through. I want God, you, all friends, merely to serve my turn. So like, like we, we're like Paul, we have that desire to do what is good, but like we're self seeking through and through. Like we're incapable of selflessness. So it's like everything we do is rooted in our own gain. Kind of like that episode of Friends where like Phoebe's determined to find like the perfect good deed. But she can't because every time she tries, she ends up accidentally getting credit or like feeling good about it or like killing a bee, I think. You see, like our natural state is not one of humility and compassion. And I once read about this idea called the lifeboat theory, and it's always kind of stuck with me. Um, it kind of goes like this. So there's a lifeboat adrift at sea, and in the lifeboat are a male lawyer a female engineer, a crippled child, a stay-at-home mom, and a garbage man. And one person has to be thrown overboard to save the others. So which person should we choose? And I think all of our minds kind of start trying to, like, do the math and, like, figure out who has more value and who has less. Like, what kind of engineer? Like, mechanical? All right. Like, safety engineer? Like, I think we have our answer. That was my engineering joke. Um... The author said that, like, the question always stuck in his mind, like, he wondered what it would be like to be in that lifeboat, like, what it would feel like to have to explain to everybody else why you shouldn't be thrown overboard. He said he wondered if those emotions that we feel in the lifeboat were anything like the feelings we all feel when we are living our lives, like we're just hanging out with our friends, or we're scrolling through Facebook, or we're in a meeting at work, like. Because these feelings that we have, he said, wanting to be right, wanting to be good, wanting to be perceived as humble, wanting to be important to people, wanting to be loved, like they feel perilous. As though by not getting them, something terrible is going to happen to us. Like we're going to be thrown out of the boat. And he said, we're all just kind of living our lives like we're scared of being killed. And like as morbid as that sounds, like I totally get that, right? Because like it feels so much of the time like like we're trapped in our own insecurities and we're slaves to our own selfishness. So how do we respond when Jesus says to serve as he came to serve? Like, how do we live up to that? You see, like, Jesus is the perfect example of sacrificial servanthood. But we're in so much trouble if he's just the example. Because we are incapable of changing. As Brandon talked about last week, like, in our default state, like, nobody here is getting saved. But, like, when we know Jesus as more than just an example, it changes everything. Because when Jesus... Like Jesus is the one who was in the lifeboat who most deserved to stay and yet he gave his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life as a ransom for me and for you. It's like Jesus was tempted by the same lies of selfish ambition and yet he didn't give into it and instead he served those around him perfectly. And later in Matthew, like Jesus tells us that all power and authority on earth has been given to him and yet he laid it all down. And he held the cup of God's wrath in his hands and at the cross he turned it over and he downed every last drop. And he cried out, it is finished. Like that's the gospel, right? Like in him, you're no longer stranded in this lifeboat. You're no longer in need of saving because like in his sacrifice, you've already been saved. And in him, like we are safe See, like, it's so easy to get wrapped up in feeling like you need to make a name for yourself, right? Like, I literally have my own website and branding. But, like, if you know Jesus and you've made him the leader of your life, like, you don't need to worry about making a name for yourself because you already have a name. In the name of Jesus, God looks at you and he says, you are of immeasurable worth. He loves you unfathomably. He approves of you completely. And in you, he is well-pleased. Like this is what it means for your identity to be in Jesus. Like you don't need to manufacture significance because you are significant. To be clear, like it's not sinful to have power. It's not wrong to desire authority or influence. Like Jesus had all of those things. Rather, Jesus' sacrifice allows us to have authority and influence without being consumed by it. Like he allows us to use that as a means to sacrificially serve those around us. And he gives us Confidence that our identity and our value are found in him and what he's done for us. And so we don't need to worry about our job title or how much money somebody else is making or how we compare to our coworkers. When we screw up, like, or somebody under us screws up, like, we are free to take the blame because, like, our identity isn't at stake. And we can fail because our value and our worth are safe in Jesus. And so instead of competing, we're freed up to actually love our coworkers, like we're free to have joy in their successes and to stand with them in their weakness, to serve them and care about their good even above our own. And as parents, like that gives us patience even when we're tired and our kids are a mess. Like it frees us up to actually care about our kids flourishing rather than just like seeking to not be annoyed or embarrassed. And like it rescues us for having to worry about what other people think when our kid is having a meltdown at the zoo because her knee is hurting and you promised her ice cream and you're all out of cash and the ATM is broken. Like that too soon? Like, rather than responding with anger or annoyance or distress, like, confidently having our identity in Jesus enables us to respond to our children with patience and empathy. So, you see, like, being out of the lifeboat that changes everything because it removes the cost.